Uh, it's hard being different. Uh, when I was in high school, I hated that my dad was a Presbyterian minister. I wished he had a normal job, uh, like everyone else's parents. I felt different. In fact, I used to die, almost die of embarrassment when Dad would come and teach scripture at my high school, at Gosford High School. Uh, it was Dad, me and another 40 or 50 kids in the teacher's common room. Uh, I could have been a big help to him. I felt sorry for him now, looking back on that, 50 or 60 teenagers in the teacher's common room. I could have been a good example. I could have listened, I could have answered questions and stood up for what I knew was true. But instead, I was more concerned with fitting in. Uh, and I either said nothing and tried to hide, or I'm embarrassed now to say I was badly behaved uh, to show everyone that I was normal. It can be tough to be different. Uh, maybe you find the same thing as a Christian, perhaps in your family where there are non-Christians. Uh, perhaps your family makes fun of you they point out when you fail. They tell you to keep quiet whenever you mention Jesus. Or maybe it's tough to be a Christian at work. The pressure is on to cut corners, to bend the truth, to overquote, to work only when the boss is watching and stop making them look bad because you're always working. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's pressure to be different. Uh, or maybe with your friends, it's tough being a Christian. The conversation turns to marriage or abortion or gender diversity or sex outside of marriage or taking drugs and they make fun out of what the Bible teaches and they dismiss you as out of date and bigoted. Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth, light of the world. He calls us to be different to let our light shine before people so that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. But it's tough to be different. Now that was Israel's experience back in the time of the judges. When God gave them the promised land, he told them not to be like the nations that they were moving into, the nations that were living around them, who had their own idols and their own morality. Don't be like them, he said. He wanted his people to be set apart as his special people, to have nothing to do with the nations, have nothing to do with their gods. But as we've seen week after week in Judges, being different was just too hard. God's people just wanted to fit in, to make treaties, to marry, to behave like the nations, to follow their gods. Time and again, through the lives of the previous 11 Judges, yes, there's been 11, uh, Israel lived just like the nations. And so God would hand them over to their enemies until they cried out to him and then he would have compassion on them and then he would raise up a judge to save them. But then as soon as the judge died, the cycle would start all over again. Well, today we meet Samson, judge number 12. Significant number, nearly always in the Bible and I think significant again. He's the final judge we meet. And some of the things are the same as before, but several things are different from previous judges. Uh, our cycle begins the same way, at least, chapter 13, verse 1. 
Uh, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Very familiar beginning, as Bill pointed out. But things have got so bad that they don't even cry out anymore. They don't even want to be saved. They've decided that living under the Philistines is better than living as God's people. And so God has to take the initiative. He doesn't wait for them to cry out. But instead of choosing a judge, God actually grows a judge. And we get a birth story. And there's an angel who appears to a childless couple, verse 3, and tells them that they will conceive and have a son. And chapter 13, verse 5, he will begin the deliverance of Israel. Does that sound familiar? An angel, a childless couple, a son born who will become a saviour. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? We'll we'll keep that in mind. Uh, Now this child will be different. Uh, He will be different from birth. Uh, The angel says to the woman, verse 4, see to it that you don't drink Uh, that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. You see, to be a Nazarite was to be different. The word means to be set apart or dedicated. You can read about uh, being a Nazarite in Numbers chapter 6. Uh, And there are these instructions for people who wanted to take a special vow uh, for a period of time, and it would make them different. Uh, So for a period of time, they would not drink alcohol. In fact, they would uh, eat nothing from the vineyard, grapes included. They would not cut their hair, and they would uh, absolutely have no contact with anything dead or unclean. And so people who took that vow they would stand out as different from the people around them. And it was meant to be, I think, a kind of living picture for what Israel was supposed to be uh, compared to the nations around them. They were meant to be set apart from God. They were meant to look different and be different and behave differently. And that's what Samson's meant to be, a living picture of what it means to be different. (laughs) He doesn't do too well, does he? Uh, The tragic thing about Samson is that he actually wants to be like me when I was a teenager. He he doesn't want to be different. He wants to fit in with the Philistines to be the same. He wants to deny the difference. First thing Samson does, chapter 14, is try to marry a Philistine woman. I mean, that's something no Israelite should do, let alone a Nazarite. But verse 1, he goes down to Timnah, he sees a young Philistine woman, he likes what he sees, and verse 2, he tells his parents, get her for me as my wife. And when they say, verse 3 of chapter 14, can't you find a Jewish girl? Must you go to the Philistines to find a wife? He says, no, she's the right one for me. He literally says, get her for me because she's right in my eyes. Now, if you know how the story of Judges finishes, that's the problem with the whole nation. Chapter 17, verse 6, we'll see it next week, we're told that in those days Israel had no king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
And here's Samson doing the same thing. Even though he's breaking God's law, though, even though he's being controlled by his own desire, somehow, in that situation, God is behind all of that. Look at verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 4. We, we get this little editorial comment. His parents say, why can't you get a Jewish girl? Uh, and then we get this comment, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. So, so somehow Samson's sinful desire to marry a Philistine girl it is from God. You see, Israel had given up. There was no fight left in them. So, so God needed someone with some fight uh, who was controlled by his passions and uh, would be someone who would provoke a fight. And that's Samson. Verse 5, on the way to organise a wedding, there's a lion who attacks Verse 6, the spirit of the Lord comes on Samson. He kills the lion with his bare hands, tears it apart. They make it there, they organise the wedding. Verse 8, uh, they, they're on their way back for the actual wedding and, and Samson sees the lion's decaying body. And strangely, unusually, uh, bees have built a hive inside. Uh, he scoops out honey and he eats it. Now, remember, he's supposed to be a Nazarite. He's not supposed to touch dead bodies. He's not doing a very good job at it. At the wedding, this story, just or this image, sticks in his mind and he uses this strange story as a riddle to trick uh, the 30 guests. Verse 12, he bets them 30 sets of clothes, one from each of them, that they can't solve the riddle. The days go by. You've got to do something when a wedding feast lasts for seven days, don't you? You've got to do something to keep yourself amused. Uh, so verse 15, they can't solve it. They convince his new wife to find out the answer. Eventually she does. She tells them, they answer the riddle. Samson is furious, verse 19. Uh, the spirit of the Lord comes on him again. He goes down to a neighbouring town. He kills 30 Philistines. Then he strips their dead bodies for their clothes. Nice. Uh, once again, something he's not supposed to do as a Nazarite. He takes the clothes, he pays the debt, he goes home. Meanwhile, uh, his new father-in-law has given his new wife to the best man, thinking Samson doesn't want her anymore. Jump to chapter 15. Sometime later, Samson's calmed down, and his thoughts turn to his lovely bride. He decides to visit his wife. He turns up, finds out she's been married to someone else, and once again, <laughs> he's furious. Uh, this time I'm justified in getting even, he says, verse 3. And so as you do, verse 4, he catches 300 foxes. Now I was thinking about this. Surely it's easier to just burn the field down yourself. Like, how difficult is it to actually catch 300 foxes? But he catches 300 foxes. He ties them tail to tail, puts a torch somehow in the, the string, lights the torch, and 150 pairs of foxes chaotically run through the fields and the grain is completely destroyed. But of course, revenge never settles anything, does it? It just made things worse. The Philistines make their inquiries, they find out it was Samson, and instead of going after him, verse 6, they go to his wife and her father and they burn them to death. 
Well, Samson says, verse 7, he won't stop until he gets his revenge. Uh, We're told he begins his revenge, he kills many, and then he goes and he hides in the area of Judah. Uh, The Philistines chase him to Judah. The local men of Judah inquire what the Philistines are doing around there. Verse 10, uh, the Philistines say, we're just chasing Samson. Uh, Verse 11, the men of Judah decide... We're going to get organised. We're going to assemble an army of 3,000 men and we're going to fight the Philistines? No. What do they do with their 3,000 men? Uh, The 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realise that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? God has called these... Jewish men, these men of Judah, to be different from the nations, to expel them. But they just want a quiet life. They just want to blend in. And Samson is putting that life at risk. Samson may have his faults, but at least he knows who the enemy is. The men of Judah don't even know who the enemy is. They think it's Samson. Their plan is to hand him over to the Philistines and then their problems will be solved and they can go back to their quiet life. Samson agrees, they bind him with new ropes, they lead him back towards the Philistines. Verse 14, the Philistines pop up to meet him. Once again, the Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson in power. He breaks the ropes like string. He grabs a fresh donkey jawbone. What's wrong with that? Well, he's a Nazarite, he's not supposed to touch it, but he touches it once again and he uses it as a weapon. He kills, verse 15, a thousand Philistines. Uh, Verse 18, a hard-earned thirst needs an ice-cold drink of water. Samson's dying of thirst. Uh, Our saviour needs saving and he cries out to God. This is actually the first time we're told Samson prays. Even though he's not a very good Nazarite, And even though he's constantly driven by anger and revenge rather than a passion for God's glory or for God's people, God answers his prayer. He opens up a crack in the rock and water comes out of it, just like God did for Israel in the wilderness. Because Samson is a picture of Israel. Samson is a picture of what Israel is like. And Samson is refreshed and he lives to fight another day. And then chapter 15 finishes with what seems like the conclusion to the Samson story. Verse 20, have a look at it. And Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. And we expect, you know, the next chapter is going to be the next biography. But it continues... What's going on? Why do we get the conclusion here? I think perhaps this is the end of the stories where the Spirit of the Lord gives Samson power. Chapter 16 is about when the Spirit is not with Samson. And we have two more stories about his great weakness. Uh, It's not kryptonite. Uh, His great weakness is women. Verses 1 to 3, the story of a Philistine prostitute that finishes with him carrying the city gates Uh, away. And then verse 4, the well-known story of Delilah. He's been a judge for 20 years. Maybe that's the point of the 
the time reference. He's been a judge for 20 years, but he's still falling into the same trap uh, with women leading him astray. Uh, the Philistine leaders, verse 5, offered Delilah a huge reward to find out the secret of Samson's strength. She begins to ask. And every answer, every wrong answer he gives ends with this phrase, if you do that, then I'll become weak like any other man. And it seems to me that's what he secretly wants. He wants to stop being different. He's had enough of being a Nazarite. He's had enough of being a judge. He just wants to be like everybody else. It's almost like he wants to get caught here, isn't it? He can't be that dumb. Then he can just get back to being normal. Verse 17, she finally wears him down with her nagging and he tells her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head because I've been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me. And literally, he says, I'll become weak and be like any other man. He's almost asking for it. To give up being set apart, to be like any other man. He doesn't care about being an Israelite. He doesn't care about being a Nazarite. So verse 18, Delilah calls in the razor gang. Uh, while, she's sleeping, they, uh, while he's sleeping, they shave his head. And as they do, his strength leaves him. She wakes him up. He thinks he can break free, just like before. But verse 20 says he didn't know that the Lord had left him. Because, of course, it's not the hair that makes him strong. It's the Lord who makes him strong. And the Lord's left him. And he gets his wish. He becomes like every other man. Philistines gouge out his eyes. They take him to Gaza. They chain him to a grindstone in prison. Our story is coming to a close. The Philistines think they've won. They assemble in their temple to celebrate. Because verse 24, they think that their god Dagon has delivered Samson into their hands. And they call Samson the one who has multiplied their slain. Well, I haven't seen anything yet when it comes to multiplication. It's ironic because there's one more to come. He begins with 30 sets of clothes, then 300 foxes. Well, now we've got 3,000 people crammed into the temple. The multiplication is just beginning. Verse 25, they bring out Samson to make fun of him. He asks to be placed touching the temple pillars so he can lean on them because, of course, he's blind and weak. But they didn't know something either, that his hair was growing back. Verse 28, he prays one last time. O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once, just once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. That's it's not really the prayer you're going to copy, is it? It's not the prayer that um, you're going to quote as you're leading church next week, is it? <laughs> Even here, right at the end, Samson's just got one thing on his mind. Revenge. That's all he's interested in. He doesn't care about God's plans or delivering the Israelites. Not even once. All his strength is for is to, to get even. That's the pattern of his whole life. Instead of a picture of how to be different, Samson is a picture of how to be the same. His love affairs, touching dead things, his angry revenge, 
He's more like a Philistine hero than an Israelite judge. And it leaves you wondering, with leaders like this, where will Israel end up? How are they ever going to be different? How are they ever going to live as God's special people? Well, we'll see next week where they end up, and it's even worse. What they need, of course, is a leader who actually will be different, a leader who is set apart from God and who will call them to be different and empower them to be different. One way of seeing Samson is that he is a picture of Israel, and I think that's part of the idea of being a Nazarite. A Nazarite's chosen by God to be different, looks different, uh, acts differently. But, but Samson chases after other women, just like Israel has done with other gods. Israel, so Samson is a picture of Israel. But Samson is also, for us, reading with New Testament eyes, a, a picture of our ultimate leader. He's a shadow of Jesus. In some ways he's uh, a negative image, but in other ways there's, there's a hint that he's a little like Jesus. Think about his birth, we mentioned that. There's the angel, the miraculous birth, and the announcement that he will be born to be a saviour. And I wonder if there's even a hint of Jesus when the angel says to his mother, 13 verse 5, Samson will begin the deliverance of Israel. There's just a little echo there, I think, that he'll begin it, but he won't complete it. There'll be another who will complete. Then jump to his death. There are echoes of Jesus in that as well, aren't there? The prisoner, um, spread, leaning against the pillars of the temple of the pagan god, he, he dies in the process of delivering his people. For all Samson's great strength, the writer gives this conclusion. He killed many more when he died than while he lived. And that's Jesus, isn't it? A criminal whose arms were spread in death, ridiculed and insulted. He gave his life and, and yet in a, a death that looked like defeat, he, he achieves a salvation that was far greater than any others achieved by living. So in some ways he's a little like Jesus, but in most of the ways he's a contrast, isn't he? He doesn't measure up to God's calling for him to be different, to be that Nazarite. But Jesus always measured up. He was the perfect leader who always followed his father's will. We look at Samson's life and we see that it was ruled by his appetites, his, his appetite for women, his, his appetite for, for, for revenge. And yet Jesus' appetite was always to please his father. In John chapter 4, he said to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That was Jesus' appetite. Now it's that obedience Jesus calls us to as well. He calls us to be different. Have a look at Matthew chapter 5. We mentioned this at the beginning. Jesus says to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do you notice, firstly, that Jesus says we are salt and light? That's our status as God's people. That's our identity. That's who you are. And then Jesus commands us to measure up to who you are. Be who you are. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your distinctiveness. Your light is shining. Let it shine. Don't put it under a bowl. Jesus wants followers who stand out. The rest of Matthew 5 will uh, explain what it means to stand out practically. People who let their light shine won't commit adultery, uh, even in their minds. People who are salt of the earth won't murder, even with angry thoughts. They won't lie. They won't seek revenge. Instead, they will love their enemies. 1 Peter 2 gives us the same message. Uh, Peter says to the people he's writing to, firstly, who their, what their identity is. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That is who you are. And then he says in verse 11, live that out. I urge you as, as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. You are different in your identity. Embrace different and live it out. That really gets to the heart of our church vision that we've been talking a bit uh, about over the last few months. Our vision is that we will be a church through which God is transforming his people. God uses us to transform us and his world. That God will use us to be changing his world. That we will be salt and light. As we love one another, as we are daily shaped by God's word, we begin to follow Jesus and to imitate him. We begin to live out our identity as different people, as aliens and strangers in this world. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're committed to avoiding lust, if you're committed to not being angry with people but instead to love your enemies, if you're committed to the truth, you will seem strange. You will seem perhaps as strange as a Nazarite looked in ancient Israel. Will you do that? I'm guessing Samson probably probably wouldn't have. Uh, But what about you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might learn from Samson, that we might learn from the Lord Jesus, uh, that we might be salt and light. As you call us to be different, that we would put our light uh, on a stand that others might see it, that we would not lose our saltiness, but that we might be distinct. Give us the courage to do that. Uh, Give us the wisdom to do that. And we pray that through us you might be transforming uh, us, one another, and your world. 
For your honour and glory we pray. Amen.